Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome to the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. Summer is here, and it will soon be time for the Midsummer Classic, the Major League Baseball All-Star Game, the first such all-star game of its kind in North American sports. This will be the 88th anniversary of the first Major League Baseball all-star game. It debuted in 1933. And so on this week's episode, we are going to take a dive back into the history of the Major League Baseball all-star game. I'm Dan Newman, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Andrew Newman, Andrew, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Dan, although as I'm trying to pull up my research for the All-Star Game episode, it's just giving me a blank screen, so I'm trying to fix that while I'm speaking to you. And you mentioned the Midsummer Classic, and I have to be honest, as a kid, that always annoyed me because, you know, I know when they say Midsummer, they mean like Memorial Day to Labor Day, sort of the cultural summer well, especially in New York, as I've learned as I've gotten older, we're kind of an outlier. School didn't really end until like this current week that we're taping this, which is June 24th, 25th. That's around when school ended when I was a kid. So the All-Star Game would be like two weeks later, and I'd be like, we're in midsummer already? Like, summer started two weeks ago. But I remember... Yeah, it- when I was in high school, one of the when I worked at Farmhouse, which nobody's going to know what that is, but it was basically like a a very poor man's CVS. And I remember Farmhouse first, with a PH, by the Farmhouse way. with a PH. I remember my first week after school had ended that year, and we were setting up the back to school display. So you're right. It seems like when you're in school, they just want to push. They want to push summer being over before it really even starts. <laughs> so before we start, just a reminder to. Email us at helloworldsports at gmail.com if you have any questions, thoughts, comments, ideas for a show. We're going to be doing one in a couple of weeks on the 1959 Chicago White Sox. That was a, our very first listener request. Rate us, follow us on iTunes and, and or your podcast app of choice. If you're like me, the new iPhone update has completely frozen your Apple Podcasts app and you haven't been able to listen to one in a week and a half. So... Hopefully, you're not similarly blessed with that fun. If you want more of us, you can check out Andrew on Monday nights on Facebook Live, The Split Decision with Andrew Newman. And if you want more sports history, you can check out some of the other great shows at the Sports History Network at sportshistorynetwork.com. So, Andrew, did you have anything to add before we got started with tonight's show? No, I don't think so. I think we'll go, you know, we'll cover a lot of you know this isn't going to be comprehensive where we go game by game for the hundred years of the all-star game but there's certainly uh plenty of interesting stories around it around the start of it and you know different anecdotes throughout the years and then sort of larger narrative questions about the evolution of it you know today and those sort of things but um yeah i'm ready to get started 
So this topic was Andrew's idea and it was fitting because I had just a couple of weeks ago purchased a book called The Midsummer Classic, The Complete History of Baseball's All-Star Game. It's about 20 years old, but it's by three gentlemen, David Vincent, Lyle Spatz, and David W. Smith. And this provides a year-by-year history of the All-Star Game through the year 2000. So I'll be drawing on that. And I want to start off with a passage from this book with the, I believe it's the forward, either the forward or the introduction. It's the called How It All Started. The All-Star Game that glorious midsummer contest between the American and national leagues is now an accepted part of each baseball season's calendar. The fans love it. And for the vast majority of them, a season without an all-star game is beyond the reach of memory. Since the first game in 1933, we've had one, two in some years in every season, except the war year of 1945. And we could add the COVID year of 2020. Yet it's worth noting that the first game almost didn't happen. And when it did, it was viewed by many as a one-time phenomenon. The 1933 game at Chicago's Comiskey Park was primarily the result of the efforts of Arch Ward, a Chicago Tribune sports editor. Chicago was hosting a World's Fair called the Century of Progress Exhibition in 1933, and fair officials had asked the local sports editors to think of an athletic event that would bring sports fans to Chicago. Ward thought of a game matching the best players in the American League against the best players in the National League. A battle he called the game of the century would be a certain success. His idea was to have the fans select the players, and to do that, he suggested enlisting 55 sports writers in cities around the country to help with the voting. Editors editors at the Tribune thought it was unlikely that other newspapers would do anything to help publicize another newspaper, but they changed their minds when all 55 accepted. So he had to not only come up with this idea and then he had to convince all of the owners in both leagues as well as the league presidents. And in the spring of 1933, voting began and the Chicago White Sox at Comiskey Park were the first ever host of the MLB All-Star Game. Voting was done uh, via the sports writers throughout the city. And that was the very beginning of the Major League Baseball All-Star Game. It should be also pointed out, Arch Ward um, also invented the Golden Gloves, the uh, amateur boxing competitions. You know, there's various ones of them in cities and, and different metropolitan areas, but he's got two pretty big for a guy who was a you know newspaper editor came up with two pretty pretty big and enduring ideas the golden gloves and the mlb all-star game um you know exhibitions and barnstorming and things weren't new most of a lot of times you'd after seasons were over you'd see teams of barnstorming teams that were maybe comprised of a lot of guys from one team but you'd have some other players and you also what you had back you know, I'm talking now the beginning of the 20th century, there was a lot of exhibition games that would even happen in the middle of seasons. Um, whether it would be the Yankees um, playing an exhibition game, you know, different charity games. Um, I know right before the 19, like a couple of weeks before the 1923 World Series, the some players on the Yankees, including Babe Ruth, put on Giants uniforms and took part in a charity game. So these things were a little more, uh, commonplace then in, in terms of that, but doing something in the middle of the season like this. And the other thing I think we should also talk about just to set the stage is that back then, especially in baseball, the two leagues were in almost every way different leagues. 
except for they came together for a World Series, but they each had different league presidents. There was different, you know, you rarely saw a guy switch leagues from waivers or trades or anything like that. A lot of the owners hated each other from different leagues, especially if you shared a city with a team. So American League versus National League was a distinction to make, obviously, because it was half the teams versus half the teams. But there were also some real legitimate natural rivalries. Yeah, there was almost this idea that you could be either an American League fan or a National League fan, just even beyond just who your own team was that you rooted for. You would be, well, I'm an American League fan. I'm a National League fan. And like you said, the owners identified with each other. A lot of times the leagues would have, you know, they'd have their own discipline structure. Now they did have, starting in 1920, that Kennesaw Mountain Landis as the one commissioner. But even in this passage that I read, a few minutes ago, I cut it off before I finished reading, but Arch Ward had to convince both the American League president and the National League president to agree to this MLB All-Star game. It wasn't the type of thing where you could just go to a single commissioner. He had to actually convince the leadership of both leagues. So the game is played on July the 6th, 1933. The managers are... John McGraw, formerly of the New York Giants, who had retired the year before, and Connie Mack of the Athletics, who would not retire for another 17 years. And I don't know that there was any rhyme or reason to why those two were chosen, other than just at the time, they were probably the two most well-known managers in the league. I mean, McGraw wasn't technically still in the league, but... I, I didn't find any reason why it was those two specifically other than that they were the, you know, the biggest draws, if you will. Yeah, they were venerable, I guess would be the word. You know, they'd both been associated with their teams for three decades at that point. Obviously, Max reign would last quite a while longer, you know, and they both were synonymous with their leagues just by virtue of first. They also squared off in the World Series a bunch of times. And I think it was just... You know, it, again, because in 1933, when they're setting this up, it was not designed to be a yearly event. So if you were picking a one-time thing and say who best represents being the manager for the American League or the National League, even though McGraw had just left, it's kind of intuitive that those were the two guys that ended up being. So a couple things that are worth noting as well here. First of all, there's only one day off. There are games played on the 5th, including a doubleheader. And there are games played on the seventh. So these teams only have one game, one day, I should say, to get back and forth from Chicago. And that creates a particular concern for a particular player. And I don't know if, Andrew, if you know what I'm alluding to here. I don't. I'm going to guess it's Babe Ruth, especially at that point in his career. But you're very close. I don't know. Gehrig. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Gehrig is very much worried, as are his you know, fans and ownership, that he is not going to make it back. And I believe at the time, he had not yet broken the consecutive game record held by Everett Scott, who was another former Yankee. And re reporters raised the question to Gehrig, and they asked him, would you go to the All-Star game? He said, certainly, if Colonel Rupert and Joe McCarthy want me to play in the Century of Progress game, which is what they were calling it, I will gladly go and give up my chance at Scott's mark. I, it is not at all certain that the fans will pick me. They may like some other first baseman better. 
but if I am nominated, I will prize the honor highly. And if the Colonel and Joe say go, you will find me on that train to Chicago. Garrick did, in fact, get back to New York to play the following day against the Tigers, and he broke Scott's record about a month and a half later on August 17th, 1933. Now, from what I see, they had two days off. The Yankees played, what was the date of the, the first game? Was it the 5th or the 6th? The 6th. So the Yankees did not play on the 5th. So we still had to get back, but they did have two days off. Did they play? When did they play? Did they play on the seventh? They played on the seventh. Yes. So it's still the same problem, but you said they had one day. I mean, I did. It did seem at least for the Yankees, like they had two days off. They played a doubleheader on the fourth Mm -hmm. and they went to, uh, they were at home and then they had two days for the all-star, whether you want to call it a break or not. Mm -hmm. And then they were back at Yankee stadium against Detroit. Now, what I'm curious about, and I didn't find this in many of my research, but I wonder if, I guess he just happened to find that every team wasn't playing on the sixth and that was just sort of his brainchild because, you know. I'm guessing they had to have scheduled that. Teams didn't have days off like that back then. They probably, you have to imagine they decided on this before the schedule was made. I don't know. I mean, it's maybe they, well, the other thing too is with how many doubleheaders there were back then. They probably could have just moved everybody's a game to like, I see the Yankees played a doubleheader on the ninth. Maybe they just moved everybody to play a doubleheader on the, you know, in that same series or something like that. Here I'm saying the, the American League owners enthusiastically approved of the game on May 9th. They chose July 6th and they instructed Will Harridge, who was the AL president, to adjust the AL schedule accordingly. So they actually adjusted the schedule once the season had already started to accommodate this game. Yeah, they were a lot less worried about what was going to irritate the players back then. So. That's a good point. That's a good point. So why don't I just give you the lineups of the first game, of the very first MLB All-Star game here. So the National League is the away team, as we mentioned, managed by John McGraw. The leading off at third base is Pepper Martin of the Cardinals. His infield mate is Frankie Frisch at second base. He bats second, also of the Cardinals. Chuck Klein, Philadelphia Phillies right fielder, bats third. The cleanup batter is the left fielder, Chick Hafey, from the Reds. So after Hafey, we have Bill Terry, first baseman of the Giants. And then batting sixth, we have Wally Berger, center fielder of the Boston Braves. Seventh is Dick Bartell, Philadelphia Phillies shortstop. Batting eighth is the catcher, Jimmy Wilson of the St. Louis Cardinals. And batting ninth is his battery mate, Bill Hallahan, the pitcher of the St. Louis Cardinals. For the American League, the leadoff batter is the left fielder, Ben Chapman of the Yankees. Second baseman is Charlie Geringer of the Detroit Tigers. Batting third is the right fielder for the Europe, from the New York Yankees, Babe Ruth. Batting fourth, the cleanup, just as he did in everyday life, Lou Gehrig, first base of the Yankees. Then we have the center fielder, Al Simmons, of the Chicago White Sox. He had left the athletics where he really had his best years. Sixth batter is Jimmy Dykes. He is the third baseman, also of the White Sox. Batting seventh is the shortstop, Joe Cronin, the player manager of the Washington Senators. Batting eighth of the Boston Red Sox is the catcher, Rick Farrell. And batting ninth is Lefty Gomez, the pitcher of the Yankees. And the interesting thing is that Gomez is a Hall of Famer. Bill Hallahan is not. 
the originally intended starting pitchers were Carl Hubble and Lefty Grove, two, you know, two much better pitchers on really on both sides. And for whatever reason, that was changed the day before. And they ended up with Gomez, who's still a Hall of Famer, and Bill Hallahan, who has sort of been forgotten to history. Yeah, and just looking at the rosters, the rest of the rosters, the NL had three additional pitchers, Carl Hubble from the Giants, Hal Schumacher from the Giants, and Juan Warnicke, or Warn- I don't know how to pronounce it, Warnicke from the Cubs. And then the American League was absolutely flush with four additional pitchers, General Crowder from the Senators, Wes Farrell from the Indians, Lefty Grove of the Athletics, and Oral Hildebrand of the Indians. So four and five pitchers, respectively, for the two teams. 18-man rosters, and the managers varied in how they used their players. So, for instance, Mack left his starting lineup in, his his position players in for the entire game with the exception of the of the putting a, a gentleman by the name of Sam West of the St. Louis Browns in for Babe Ruth late in the game, whereas Graw used, I think, every single one of his substitutes, his substitute position players, Every team has a representative starting a tradition that continues up until this very day. And that is the very first All-Star game. First home run, fittingly enough, is hit by Babe Ruth. And the American League is victorious over the National League by a score of 4-2. to two. The one other thing that I would note is that I like the timing historically of when this All-Star game came about. Because I think it's sort of important that Babe Ruth got to be an all-star a couple of times. If there had been an all-star game not until, say, 1937, I don't think it would have the same historical cachet because the fact that Babe Ruth gets to play in the first all-star game and hit the first all-star home run, I think that's important. And that McGraw got to manage one. Yeah, you know, absolutely. He did pretty soon after this. So the fact that he was able to uh, to manage in an all star game as well, you know, we've talked about John McGraw with the 1890s Orioles. So you're going, you know, back into the 19th century, and he was able to sort of touch the beginning of this new era in the 30s. You know, and I think it's important also to realize, and this is probably one of the major reasons for the game sticking around beyond 1933, was this was the heart of the Great Depression and. You know, people were really struggling and baseball was struggling with attendance and things like that. And this was one of the few boons they hit on in the 30s, which was this all-star game that was came right in the middle of the season, was a big attraction. You know, if you consider baseball's attractions, opening day, the World Series, well, now you have something in the middle of the all-star game and get fans invested in voting and following along who's leading in the votes and things like that. And then the actual game, you know, it was really a became an important linchpin for baseball during what was otherwise kind of a lean time, especially anywhere besides New York city and St. Louis in the thirties. And they start the tradition pretty soon, pretty soon. They start the tradition right away of it moving to a different host field, a different host city every single season. Now, most cities in those days were two league cities, Boston, New York, St. Louis, Chicago. I think there was, there must've been another one that was it. Boston, Philadelphia. St. Louis, 
Philly, Philly was a two city. So other than, and then you only had a few Detroit, Cleveland, Pittsburgh. You had a few single DC. There was five in like five teams that were single city teams. And then the other 11 were in five cities because there was three in New York. Okay. So basically half the cities had teams in both leagues. But if you're a fan in one of those other cities in Detroit or Pittsburgh or wherever, it's kind of your only chance to see these players. And then obviously 20 years later, 25 years later, when we get to TV, it's your only chance to see a lot of these guys, especially all on the field at the same time. So that really is one of the initial attractions is everybody's on the field at the same time playing against players and pitching again. And we're going to talk about something in a minute here that really kind of drives that point home. And it's your chance to see guys where if you lived in a city with only one league, you might not get a chance to see those guys ever. Yeah. And that's when we get to the golden age of the all-star game, we'll talk about, you know, that again. And, and, you know, towards the end when it's about, well, it's not as important as it used to be. And we'll talk about how some of that was just inevitable because reasons you just mentioned don't exist anymore across anything, but we'll get to that. So it doesn't take long for a memorable moment in all-star game history. And that's the following year in 1934. And that is, something that is still talked about to this day is one of the great pitching feats in Major League Baseball history, and that is when Carl Hubble, the great pitcher for the New York Giants, strikes out in succession in the 1934 All-Star Game. He strikes out Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Jimmy Fox, Al Simmons, and Joe Cronin. Just among those first three I think there's something like, because Fox has over 500 home runs for his career, doesn't he? Yeah, I think he's like, I'll look, but I think he's like 520 something. I'll, I'll look right now, though. So there's like 1,700 total home runs just in those three guys. And then I don't know how many Al Simmons has, but the point being is that we might be close to 2,000 home runs career in those five guys. Fox that- has 534. Okay, and let me just... It had is he's probably not going to add to that total, so we can probably say that in the past tense. And 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 Al Simmons had 307. So, yeah, he, that's definitely among... And Cronin, I don't know. Cronin probably wasn't much of a power hitter, but you're talking about five guys, five Hall of Famers with a combined 2,000 home runs. And in the first and second innings of the MLB All-Star Game of 1934, Carl Hubble strikes out those five gentlemen, one of the great pitching performances in not just in all-star game history, but really in baseball history. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, I always used to conflate when I was a kid and, you know, going through the baseball history, I would always sort of conflate Hubble and a similar feat in the thirties when they went, it was, was it even the same year when they went on the tour of Japan? It must have been because that was when when Ruth came back, he he got cut from the Yankees or released or whatever. So it must have been the same year that they went on that tour of Japan and E.G. Sawamura struck out a bunch of them in that Japanese in that game in Japan. Yep, Japanese great Japanese pitcher by the name of E.G. Sawamura later killed in the Second World War. And he struck out Charlie Geringer, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig and Jimmy Fox in succession. So. Three of the four, same guys. Three of the same guys, also four Hall of Famers, and you're right, all in the same, I think, all in the same basic year or so. Sauromora was in November 1934, so like 
three and a half months later. So yeah, it was it was the same year, you know, just kind of I was just you know, and again, I was a kid, but it was, I was just kind of weirdly conflated those two, but, um, yeah, certainly gets, that's gotta be the, you have obviously everything about the 33 one Ruth hitting the home run, just the game itself being a big deal. And then right away in 34, you have another moment that's endured through these years and with Hubble. So the next moment I want to talk about, I don't know if you had anything in between. I want to talk briefly about the 1941 all-star game. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. I don't, uh, you know, like I said, we don't have time to, to really go through all of these. But yeah, the, the 41 obviously kind of piggybacks on an episode we'll be doing soon on the 1941 sports in 1941. Obviously, the baseball season being a big part of that. So this makes sense. And it's really what it is, is it's the coming out party for Ted Williams. And this was a time when players, most players, not all, but a lot of players would play the entire game. So for instance, in the 1941 world series, both Joe DiMaggio and Ted Williams play the entire game. And the American league goes into the bottom of the ninth trailing five to three with the bases loaded. Uh, Joe DiMaggio almost hits into a game ending double play, but he just beats out the throw at first base or that actually the throw uh, is off the mark and it pulls the first baseman off the bag. That makes the score five to four. And then Ted Williams hits a three run home run off of a pitcher by the name of Claude Passeau of the Chicago Cubs. And that gives the American league, the win seven to five. And when you hear people talk about Ted Williams, famous 1941 season obviously what comes immediately to mind is the fact that he hit 400 at 406 but this home run off Passo in the bottom of the ninth inning against the National League in the All-Star game is always sort of talked about as one of not only one of the great All-Star moments but really one of the great Ted Williams moments because if you think about it Williams didn't have a lot of postseason and the one postseason that he was in in 46, he did very poorly. And so this 1941 home run for Ted Williams that won the game for the American league, it's considered one of the great moments in the history of Ted Williams's career. You know, just as we cover the sort of the early years from a team standpoint, that that first team in 33, there was 18 guys. The next year, they went up to 20 on a roster. By the late 30s, it was up to 25 and stayed that way up until the 80s. The, I'm just going through sort of the voting history and player selection methods. In 33 and 34, the fans selected the starters for each game and the manager chose the rest of the league's players by 34. They had gone, you know, now that they realized, Hey, this is going to be an annual event. They had standardized the manager who won the pennant the year before is the manager of the league the next year. Now, very importantly, they, they specified the manager of the team that won the pennant the year before, which comes up a few times later on when that manager is, gone not with that team sometimes he's with a team in the same league sometimes he's with the team in the in a different league but they pretty quickly established that starting in 1935 through 1946 the manager of each team selected the entire team so the fan was 
the first two years the fans were involved after that until right after world war two, it fell entirely on the manager to pick the entire team. So you had a lot of managers picking or not picking guys, probably not based on the most altruistic reasons. And when that lasts up to 46, you said, yep. What I'm looking at here is it says in 1947 fans are given the opportunity to vote on the eight starting position players again, which led famously, and I don't want to skip too far ahead, but that led to the famous 1957 ballot stuffing incident with Cincinnati Reds fans, where they elected a red to every position except for one, and Ford Frick had to step in and move a few guys out of there. Yeah, and we will talk about that. The selection of the entire team by the manager actually comes into play in... 1943 the Yankees had won the AL pennant in 42 so Joe McCarthy the manager of the Yankees was the manager of the American League team and he selected I think seven Yankees to the team only one of them was a starter and that was Charlie Keller uh, outfielder Charlie Keller but Keller gets injured and so McCarthy is left with a team, all of these Yankees on his bench, uh, the pitcher, Tiny Bonham, another pitcher, Spud Chandler, catcher, Bill Dickey, future Hall of Famer, second baseman, Joe Gordon, another future Hall of Famer, and Johnny Lindell, an outfielder. So that is one, two, three, four, five Yankees plus Keller, six Yankees on a team of, I think it was probably still 20 at that point. But McCarthy who was known to be a little bit of a stubborn, spiteful guy, his reaction to this criticism is that he doesn't allow a single Yankee to set foot in the game. (laughs) And the American League still beats the National League 5-3. to And when they ask him why he didn't use any Yankee players, he said, we didn't need them. We got out there in front early enough. Besides, these other boys deserved a chance to shine. The Yankees have had enough of the limelight. Let some of these other guys get some of it. So he's saying the Yankees have seen the limelight enough and that's let some of these other guys play. And this is also during World War II. So it's, you know, a lot of the guys who are what you would consider the stars of baseball at that time aren't available to begin with. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Another st- milestone I want to mention is a few years later in 49, every team had hosted an all-star game except for one by 1949, and that was the Dodgers in Ebbets Field. And they host for the first time in 1949, and that is fitting because that is the year that their legendary player and barrier breaker, Jackie Robinson, plays in the All-Star Game for the first time, and he's a starter. And all told, there are actually, this is the first All-Star Game with African-American players, and there are four. There are, um, actually, let me see, maybe you can guess them. Who do you think the four First four black all-stars in 1949 are. Oh, I'm going to be bad at this. I'm going to guess, obviously, Jackie. Mm -hmm. Was Larry Doby one of them for the Indians? Yep, Larry Doby. Um, 49, was Satchel Paige an all-star? Paige was not, no. I figured that was worth a guess. Um, Was Campanella there by then? Campanella was one, yeah. All right, I got three of them, so I didn't didn't show my behind. Um, 49, can you give me AL or NL? NL. Yeah, I guess that probably should have gone without saying. Um, NL. No, I can't. Don Newcomb. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So those are the first four African-American All-Stars in 1949. And then 
sort of to piggyback on that, there's, a, there's sort of a good story from 1952 and 1953. You mentioned Satchel Page. Well, Casey Stengel is the manager of the Yankees, obviously, by that point, and they're winning the World Series at least, and many times the pennant is, or sorry, they're winning the pennant at least, and many times the World Series as well. And Satchel Page is pitching for the St. Louis Browns. And in 52, Page is having a pretty good year. And so Stengel picks him for the all-star team. But before Page is able to get into the game, there is a downpour. And the game is, you know, it ends early. It's canceled early. And so Stengel promises Page that if he's able to manage the team again in 53, that he will name Satchel Page to the all-star team. And Page is not having the year that he had the year before. In fact, he finishes the regular season with a three and nine record. And this is Page's only real, um, this is Page's final real year in the major leagues. He does sort of a gimmicky thing in 1965 for the Kansas City Athletics. But this is Page's last year, but Stengel, feeling bad about what happened to page the year before picks page to go to the all-star game, even though the numbers might not necessarily merit it. And satchel page is able to get into an all-star game. Let me just pull up and see what, uh, pull up his, uh, his pitching line here. And him and Stanger would have been roughly the same age at that point. So, <laughs> Yeah, probably. Page was probably closer to Stengel than he was to some of the players. Yeah. He does not pitch well. He pitches He get, pitches one inning, gives up three hits, a run, two runs, two earned runs, and a walk. want to see if these uh, these hits are to anybody, uh, anybody decent. He gives up a base hit to Roy Campanella. He gives up a, uh, a walk to Duke Snyder, a single to Enos Slaughter, and then a single to a gentleman by the name of uh, Dixon. So those are some sort of cool moments from the early days of the post-war All-Star game. And by this point, I think it's really when it's starting to become an event. And I'm just looking because it was the one we were talking about. I'm looking at in one All-Star game, Yogi Berra, Mickey Mantle, Larry Doby, Nellie Fox, George Kell, Bob Lemon, Johnny Mize, Satchel Page, Phil Rizzuto. And then in the NL, you got Robin Roberts, Roy Campanella, Eddie Matthews, Pee Wee Reese, Stan Musial, Enos Slaughter, Ralph Kiner, Jackie Robinson, Duke Snyder, Warren Spahn, Hoyt Wilhelm. There's 8 to 12 Hall of Famers on both of those teams, and it just shows you what an event it was in those days, this just collection of superstars. And as you're talking about, you know, the early 50s, we go back to this is becoming the advent of television where people more and more people are getting TVs or have access to a TV. And, you know, the being able to see these guys in a game like this where they're all playing each other is, you know, this outside of the World Series, this is sort of the biggest national event they had games of the week and things like that but this was a big thing and i just kind of wanted to go sort of the same era 1950 was the first 14 or was the first extra inning game Mm -hmm. national league wins four to three in 14 innings the first all-star extra inning game it also is a nobody knows this at the time but it's an interesting inflection point where from 33 to 49 
you know, obviously there was no game in 45. So the first 16 games, the American League has won 13 of them. Starting in 1950, all the way through 1987, the National League went 33-8-1. and Obviously, as you get into the 60s and 70s, it's a much more lopsided league. Some of these early ones in the 50s and early 60s, you're still in the middle of the Yankee dynasty, but the National League begins this long, long run of dominance in the all-star game and a large part of that was because they were the better league and a large part of that was because they had embraced the black and latin players whereas the american league still was a lot of guys who looked like roger maris and didn't hit as well as him yes lots of crew cuts and you know yeah let, let me just skip ahead sort of real quick there that that's sort of a good um let me just pick a pick sort of a random year here let's let's go with like say 1963 uh, that's actually maybe not the not the best example. Let me. I'm just trying to find sort of an example of what you're talking about here. With um, like maybe the early late '60s, early '70s, I would think. Yeah, and it evened out a little more. I feel like, as far as from the integration point of view, by that point, maybe like mid '60s here. Maybe while you're looking for one, I'll mention sort of a, a misstep in the All Star Game history, and that was. From 1959 to 1962, there were actually two All-Star games each year. And it's funny because I kind of would think of that as like a modern invention. Like, oh, can't we leave well enough alone? We've had one All-Star game for so long. Now we have to have two. But what it was, was the second one was designed to benefit the retired players fund. This was in days long before unions and pensions for players and things like that. So it was certainly created for the right reasons but they pretty quickly realized like oh this is really watering things down it's hurting the appeal of both games and it was quickly done away with but a lot of people don't know that for four years there were two all-star games and i think that that is something that people don't realize and a lot of times you'll hear talk about somebody like a musial stan musial or hank aaron or willie mays and mickey mantle and you always hear well they were a 25-time All-Star, and you have to sort of realize that four of those years, they were technically considered All-Stars twice. So when you ever look at a list of how many guys in baseball history were named to the most All-Star teams, those guys from the 50s and 60s sort of tend to dominate the list. In the very first year, all of the position players returned. This was in 59 from both games, unless there were injuries. And then the managers were allowed to pick all new pitching staffs. How far apart were they? So in 59, there was one on July 7th. And then the one before that was, hold on, unless that was the first. No. Yeah, that, that was 50. Okay, so 59, the first one was July 7th. And the second one was 8-3, was August 3rd. So they were about a month apart. 1960, it was July 11th and July 13th. So they oh. were right back to back. They went from Kansas City to Yankee Stadium over the course of two days. Well, a lot of guys did that back then. <laughs> 61, it was July 11th at Candlestick. And then July 31st, so that's about three weeks later, and that one was at Fenway. And then the last year, it was July 10th in D.C., followed by July 30th at Wrigley Field. So... 
usually about three years apart with the or three weeks apart, I should say, with the exception of one year where they did them, you know, basically two days out of three. Yeah, a uh, an experiment that was quickly cut off and seems like justifiably so. So just to sort of circle back on two quick points. First of all, the the black and Latin players in the 60s. I couldn't find a perfect example of it, but just think about it this way. You had an outfield on some of these teams of Hank Aaron, Roberto Clemente, and Willie Mays, and a first base, Willie McCovey at first base. You know, and then you had a whether it was a Orlando Cepeda or Lou Brock or Ernie Banks at shortstop is another one. Now, that's not to say that there weren't legends on the other side, Mantle obviously being the first one that comes to mind. And that's also not to say that there were no black or Latin players in the American League. I mean, Frank Robinson after he got traded to the Orioles. So it's not that simple, but that is a big reason. The talent, especially when you went past the Yankees, the talent in the National League was just so much better for so long in the 60s and early 70s. Absolutely. And then, you know, certainly, especially with a a game like this, there could be flukes in there. But for a four decade period, uh, it goes beyond sort of anomaly where it's like, no, this definitely is indicative of something when you're talking 33, eight and one over, you know, a 42 game stretch. So before we move on too far, you mentioned 1956 and the ballot stuffing. And that was when a writer for the 57, I think it was. Uh, hold on. No, it was it was 56. OK. And that was when a writer for the Cincinnati Inquirer tried to get as many Cincinnati Reds elected to the team as he possibly could. And he succeeds in getting one, two, four, five, five of the eight. So that's Ed Bailey at catcher, Johnny Temple at second base, Roy McMillan at shortstop. Gus Bell in the outfield and Frank Robinson in the outfield. Can you just do me a favor when you edit this episode and realize that I was right? Can you just put in a voiceover and say, hi, everyone, this is Dan. I realized I was wrong and that the actual ballot stuffing controversy was in 1957, not 1956. Really? Yeah, just do that. It'll be great. No, I'm, I'm, I'm curious now. I'm- Google Red's ballot stuffing and see what comes up. Oh, okay. So, you know what? We're we're both sort of right here. I'm right. So, in '56, they did have five of eight starters as the result of ballot stuffing, and then they must it must have worked so well that they went back to it in '57. Okay. So, when was the year Frick had to take some guys out? Yeah, '57, seven out of eight. The only one who doesn't make it is the first baseman, a guy by the name of George Crow. He narrowly loses out to Stan Musial, who probably <laughs> deserved it a little more. Imagine if you're that guy. And it should also be pointed out that those Reds teams were not like a team of distinction. The mid-50s Reds, I mean, they were not winning any pennants. That was the Dodgers and the Braves. And, you know, yeah, that was they, they were not like a team that would... I know they won the pennant in 61, but... And so Ford Frick, you're right, cites an overbalance of Cincinnati votes and orders outfielders Gus Bell and Wally Post drop from the list of starters. So for two years in a row, you have more than half of the starting players for the National League are members of the Cincinnati Reds. And this is not a down time for the National League. This is a time of Willie Mays, Stan Musial, Roy Campanella, 
Duke Snyder, Ernie Banks, Hank Aaron, Eddie Matthews. So l- let's just look at the this for 57. This is the starting lineup for the National League. You have Kurt Simmons from Philly at catcher, Ed Bailey at first base. Ed, I'm sorry, Kurt Simmons from Philly pitching, Ed Bailey from Cincinnati catching, Musial. You have the rest of the infield is all Reds, Johnny Temple, Don Hoke, and Roy McMillan. And then in the outfield, you have Aaron Mays and Frank Robinson. But one of those outfield slots would have been no, both of those outfield slots would have been filled by Reds if Ford Frick hadn't stepped in. So instead of Hank Aaron and Willie Mays, you would have had Gus Bell and Wally Post in the Cincinnati Reds outfield. So lest anybody think that ballot stuffing was a creature of the internet or something recent, it was alive and well in Cincinnati in the mid-1950s. Absolutely. <laughs> And then the only other memory I wanted to mention from about that time was in 1961 at one of the all-star games and the one in Candlestick Park. And that is the famous game where actually he was a Giants pitcher, a Giants pitcher by the name of Stu Miller was, uh, as the legend has it, blown off the mound while he was waiting to pitch by the heavy wind gusts at Candlestick Park. And that is always cited as evidence of just how terrible Candlestick Park was as a place to play baseball and that it was so chilly and windy in mid-July that a player was literally blown off the mound while he's trying to pitch. And so I actually just finished reading a book about Horace Stoneham, and that's one of the examples they cite when they want to talk about just how terrible Candlestick Park was as as a baseball park. Yeah, we moved to 1970. I feel like we've talked a lot about the 50s. We've talked a lot about the 60s. The 70s may well be the best decade for all-star games, and certainly 1970 is a year that uh, was a good game but is remembered in baseball lore for something much, something else, shall we say. The only other one I would mention would real quick would be 1967. 15-inning game, 2-1, to one, 30 strikeouts between the two teams, home runs by... Two guys who were in the Hall of Fame, Tony Perez and Brooks Robinson, and another home run by Dick Allen, who one day will be in the Hall of Fame. That was a game with a famous story. That was Mickey Mantle. I believe that was Mantle's last All-Star game, and he always tells a story about how he showed up to the game late. He had been off somewhere, struck out, and then flew back to wherever he would be, had been at some country club in Texas or something. And, Bounce, I think, yeah. And they said to him, Mick, are, didn't we just see you strike out in this game? <laughs> like... He's like, oh, no, that wasn't me. So, yeah, that, another another long, and it kind of demonstrates just how dominant pitching was that in 1967, 30 All-Stars struck out over the course of a 15-inning game. So, yeah, why don't we fast forward a little bit to 1970? So, 1970, Riverfront Stadium. The NL wins 5-4 to four in 12 innings. It is... President Richard Nixon delivers the first pitch, becoming the first, the, just the second sitting president to attend the All-Star Game after Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1937. AL had a 4-1 to lead into the bottom of the ninth. The NL ends up tying it up, but the famous moment is Pete Rose. And again, this is still an exhibition game. And Pete Rose crashing into Indians catcher Ray Fossey and not ending his career, but essentially derailing his career permanently broke his collarbone i believe was the official injury right 
That's right. And in this book that I referenced, the Midsummer Classic by Vincent Spatz and Smith, they do note that Rose actually was more injured than Fosse at the beginning. Rose uh, didn't play for almost a week after the collision. He didn't start for more than a week, whereas Fosse did play the next scheduled game. And Fosse did finish out the career. 1970 was his best season, but then um, he did play at least 130 games each of the next three seasons. So it doesn't necessarily end Fosse's career the way the legend might have it, but he does never experience the type of season that he had in 1970. And this is always cited as sort of example one of the will to win at all costs that Pete Rose has that he would slam into a fellow player during an exhibition game. Yeah. And again, I I think Pete Rose, most of Pete Rose's messes are made of his own volition and he probably shouldn't have done that. But at the same time, it wasn't crashing into the catcher was not considered out of bounds back then in like a regular game that would have been considered like a smart play. And the all-star game was you know, probably at its height of relevance and importance, certainly pre-2003, and even still probably then. So while, yeah, you can certainly fault him for doing it, it wasn't this sort of egregious, dirty, cheap shot that it sometimes gets made out to be. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that's one of those things where in some ways you just have to sort of understand the time period in which it was taking place. Yeah, and that doesn't mean you need to completely be like, oh, well, that's just baseball. Yeah, like, I probably didn't need to slam it at a catcher in the All-Star game, but it was also, you know, it, there were some circumstances that should at least be factored in. I want to talk briefly about 71 because it's one of the most star-studded All-Star games. The National League has Mays, Aaron, Stargell, McCovey, Bench, five Hall of Famers in their lineup. The American League has... Carew, Yastrzemski, Frank Robinson, Brooke Robinson, Aparicio, and Vita Blue as the pitcher. Blue's not in the Hall of Fame, but the the five position players are. So five Hall of Famers from each league in the starting lineup. And this is a game with home runs by six different Hall of Famers. Clemente, Aaron, Bench, Robinson, Killebrew, and Reggie Jackson. Reggie Jackson hits a home run off Doc Ellis that goes at least 520 feet in the 1971 all-star game. And so then, and that game's at tiger stadium in Detroit. So another sort of legendary all-star game. And again, in the seventies, the all-star game was known for these star packed big moments. It really was a showcase of stars even through the 1970s. Yeah, and this might have been the height of the All-Star game because, again, obviously by now you're talking TV. You're talking pretty much everybody has TV. You know, sort of the ABC. When you think the 70s in sports TV, I think Monday Night Football, a lot of these games were on ABC with similar announcers. Cosell, you had a lot of the colorful, the A's with all their players wearing the different iterations of their uniforms. And again, if you lived in a city that basically by that point wasn't New York or Chicago or I guess LA outside of the game of the week or Monday night baseball or whatever. Let's say you lived in Philadelphia. You didn't get to see the Boston Red Sox all that often, you know, or you didn't, if you lived in Detroit, how often did you get to see those great Cincinnati Reds teams? So 
the All-Star game was your opportunity to see Pete Rose or to see Hank Aaron, or even more so, if you lived in Detroit, how often did you get to see the San Francisco Giants out on the West Coast? How often did you get to see Willie Mays? Yeah, and I also think it's worth noting that even into the 70s and 80s, the summer was sort of devoid of sports. The NBA Finals ended sometime in June, maybe every four years you get an Olympic year. But the All-Star Game was really the only sports event from sometime in May or June until the beginning of football season a couple months later. And even like, I don't know if you remember this, but our parents used to talk about how when they used to go on vacation, they, the one night that they wouldn't go out when they were on vacation was they would order in takeout and they would go, they would watch the all-star game. And that's even yeah. into the eighties. And the, you know, our parents were fans, but it's not like they were huge, huge baseball fans. So it really was an event. Yeah, it was, you know, and it was at a time when there was a lot less events, both in TV and, you know, in sports and in TV. So yeah, really from the end of, the NBA season, which could be as early as May until Labor Day, that was the sporting event, was the All-Star game. Did you have any other moments? I actually didn't have anything that I thought was worth noting until 1987. Did you have anything else you wanted to mention before we kind of got into our lifetimes in the late 80s? I would mention that 85 was the first year of the Home Run Derby. Mm-hmm. You know, So that was the night before the All-Star game. Basketball had started or was about to start. I guess they'd already with the three point contest and the dunk contest and creating sort of a a couple of you know being able to do something the night before. And in '85, Major League Baseball introduces the home run derby the night before. It's had its ups and downs in terms of importance and watchability, and in in its purest essence, it's a you know it's just basically an entertainment product that obviously isn't a real baseball thing, but they were adding things to the all-star game experience. And there were certainly big, you know, you think about whatever it was, 93, I guess in Camden yards with guys hit with Griffey hitting the warehouse and things mm-hmm. like that. So I just figured that in 2008, I think it was Josh Hamilton the last year at Yankee stadium. Yeah. I remember uh, that well, there have been some pretty big, cool moments in that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. There have been and. Who won the first one in 85? So in 1985, it was Dave Parker with the Reds in the Metrodome in Minnesota. And then the next year, Wally Joyner and Daryl Strawberry tied. You know, and he had some big names. Andre Dawson the next year. 1990 was Ryan Sandberg. 1991 was Cal Ripken Jr. Then you start to get into some legit power. How about this run here from 92? Starting in 92, it was McGuire, Juan Gonzalez, Griffey, Frank Thomas, Barry Bonds, then Tino Martinez, the year he hit like 42 home runs for the Yankees. That's right. I forgot about that. that he and won Griffey that in 98 and 99, Sammy Sosa in 2000, and then I'll stop in a second, Giambi in 02, and Luis Gonzalez in 01. So, you know, some big, like, you know, this was for a while, the top power hitters in baseball were doing this. So, yeah. A couple quick moments I want to run through. 1987 is a 0-0 game until the 13th inning when Tim Raines hits a triple to left center field scoring Ozzie Virgil and Hubie Brooks. And then the very next year, 1988, the bottom 
I think it's actually the top of the first. I hope you just bear with me here. Um, ba, 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 ba. Or do I have, I think I might be a year off. I think this might be 1989. So just uh, bear with me. Yes, 1989, the American League is the home team. The game's being played in Anaheim. And this is the only all-star appearance for Bo Jackson. He's elected a starter from the Kansas City Royals, and they bat him leadoff. And he leads off the bottom of the first inning with a home run to center field in his very first all-star at bat. And then the batter after him comes up and also hits a home run. And I think if I gave you 10 guesses, you probably wouldn't guess who this batter was. It was Wade Boggs. <laughs> so, it just, there's very, something very sort of incongruous about the idea of Bo Jackson and Wade Boggs hitting back-to-back home runs. But <laughs> MLB All-Star Game, July 11th, 1989, they sure did. <laughs> Yeah, and so I think by this point, I mean, this is when I start remembering the All-Star Game, and it was always, it was a fun, it was a fun evening. Yeah, I I guess I probably remember starting in about the mid-90s, and like I said, it was always pretty early into the summer. One thing I remember as a kid was always sort of being very aware of, like, how much of summer was gone. Mm -hmm. So that was, that's always a positive memory for me, because it was still in the era where, you know, it was still, it was only a couple of weeks into summer, so I couldn't be like, oh, too much of the summer is gone already. So... Yeah, I, I, I don't of the mid '90s. I don't have a lot of specific memories, to be honest. I remember there was one year. I remember Hideo Nomo pitching in a game, but I couldn't tell you what year that was. That probably would have been his rookie year, which was what '95. I want to say because I think I remember watching him bat and not do a very good job, and that was kind of what I remember. Well, I also remember the there were two incidences with. Randy Johnson, where he just threw it over a guy's head. And yeah, that would have been Nomo's rookie year, 95. I think that was his only time ever on the all-star team. Nomo was his rookie year, 95. But there were those two incidents with, remember, with, uh, with first with Cruck mm-hmm. in like 93, where he threw it over his head. And there's this famous picture of Cruck, like taking a deep breath and like, you know, shaking his jersey to, to, to cool himself off. And then four or five years later, there was one with Larry Walker. With Colorado, that's right. And there had been because they'd been teammates in Montreal and there'd been some sort of back and forth between them. Like leading up to the game. And Johnson threw it over Walker's head because then Larry Walker flipped his batting helmet around to the other side. That's right. And batted from the other side of the plate, which Randy Johnson was an intense guy. He really Especially was. when he was with Seattle with the hair and the. Yeah. Yeah. So those are my real memories. And then I guess. Probably the most memorable all-star game, you know, of, of our childhoods, if that's what you want to call it, has got to be 99 at Fenway. Yeah, with Ted Williams coming out on the uh, the cart, the golf cart, and then all the all-stars surrounding him and, and showing him a lot of love and appreciation. And he was really the last guy of that era who was around at that point. So, yeah, DiMaggio had died earlier that year. And really, and the funny thing, too, is that people always think of it as just Ted Williams. There were a ton of legends on that field because that was when they announced the nominees for the all-century team. So I don't want to start listing guys because I'm sure I'll probably list somebody who wasn't there who was or who was there for wasn't. But, you know, you had the, you know, the the Joe Morgans and the Johnny Benches and the Frank Robbins and I think Mays and Aaron were there. So, yeah, it was Ted Williams. It was also all of these other 
great legends all on this one field and at Fenway Park, which is, you know, the, the historic park in baseball history. So just a really great, cool moment to close out the century in baseball history. Yep, certainly. And then Pedro does a Carl Hubble and goes out there and strikes out Barry Larkin, Larry Walker, Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, and Jeff Bagwell, three Hall of Famers, and two guys who very well might be if it wasn't for accusations of steroids. Yeah, uh, yeah, and at the height of McGuire and Sosa the year before, it hit 70 and 66 home runs. And I think in 99, they both hit more than 62 home runs again that year, too. So That's right, they both at did. At the absolute right. height of their prowess. I was going to say, so to me, then, the next thing would be 02. The two things, really, that I remember is, number one, in 2000, there were a ton of injuries, so much so that this is the first and only ever all-star game appearance for Joe Girardi as a backup catcher. And the weirdest thing was they, they, they called Joe Girardi to be a backup catcher in the all-star game like a day or two before, and then they don't even let him get in the game. And I remember somebody telling me that basically they were just basically just calling catchers until they found somebody who would agree to come do it. And Girardi was who they landed on. That was when he was with the Cubs, right? That was when he was with the Cubs. And I still remember him out there on the field holding his, his son. And he was the only one doing that because I think his attitude was like, look, I've never been here before. I'm not, probably never going to be here again. So, Well, he would have been there in 2010 as the manager. Yeah, but he didn't know that at the time. No, no, no. I know. I know. I know. And I, I wonder that that might have even been his last season, Girardi, 2000. Yeah. So that very weird story. And then in 01, the only thing I remember is that Joe Torre took a bunch of Yankees. He took like seven Yankees. He took any possible Yankee that you could think to take, and he caught a, a decent amount of flack. I still remember sitting actually on the floor of your bedroom playing Nintendo and listening to Mad Dog Russo interview Joe Torre like three days before the All-Star game and just rip into him occasionally, logically, oftentimes nonsensically. And that's the one thing I would kind of circle back to is like, that's the... Do you, if I quickly said to you right now, can you remember who the, what the fear was about who didn't get selected to the all-star team in 2014? No, you can't. And that's the, I've just, that's the one thing I would say as I've gotten older is I just, I have no appetite for the, the sort of uproar about who does or doesn't make the all-star team in a given year, because you can't remember, you couldn't remember what the, uh, any specific year really, you can't remember. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. So we should probably talk about O2. And unfortunately, this game is not remembered for the amazing catch that Torrey Hunter makes off of Barry Bonds in center field in the early innings when Barry Bonds then runs out after the in-between innings and lifts Torrey Hunter up to, quote-unquote, punish him for robbing him of a home run. I think maybe everybody wishes that Torrey Hunter hadn't robbed him of a home run because this is the... 7-7 tie game after 12 innings. Rosters are at 30 players by this point. This is the first year of the fan voting online for the 30th player, but even with these 30 players, the teams run out of pitchers in the 12th inning and have to end the game in a 7-7 tie. Yeah, I remember watching this game. Was, this would have been the summer between my 10th and 11th grade years. I remember I think I had a couple of friends over, you know, nothing big, but we were just sitting there watching the game and remember watching it. And I remember when it went into extra innings and I think it was pretty quickly. It was like before the bottom of the, yeah, after, 
after the top of the 11th, Tory and Brenly went to the commissioner who was sitting there. And also this is in Milwaukee. This is sort of his big event. It's in Miller Park. Selig was the former owner of the Brewers. Oh, so this is sort of his homecoming festival. And I remember the sort of the graphic or the, you know, the image of the two of them standing there talking to him. And they basically said, like, both teams are down to their last pitcher. If the game doesn't end in the bottom of the 11th, the game is over. Because I remember when um, Benito Santiago came up, he was the last batter. With Mike Lowell on second. I'm guessing it was Joe Buck and Tim McCarver. It must have been Joe Buck said, and suddenly everybody's a Benito Santiago fan, and then he like lined out to center field or flew out to center field. And I remember at the time being sort of like, if you're at the stadium, I get where you'd be upset about it, but like it was still a fun game, and who cares? Like, I remember at the time being like, this really shouldn't be that big of a deal, but oh my god! And that is one thing I have to say, and to sort of introduce current events into this briefly. So we're in the middle right now of the sticky stuff controversy. Journalism around baseball is so much less sanctimonious than it was 20 years ago, whether it's about steroids or the all-star game being a tie. There just seem to be smart journalists who cover things without the sanctimony. Just the, the amount of, and again, it's like, okay, they put in some rules the next year and one of them is probably pretty still not well regarded, but like just the amount of people who thought this was like, and again, you have to go back to when this was, this is July of 2002. It's nine months after September 11th. So everything is still about September 11th. And somehow this is an affront to the national identity. And it's like, oh, just give it a rest. You know, okay. You can say like, hey, let's think about some things to do where we can avoid this in the future. But there was just, it's so quickly moved into the realm of high dudgeon that I was like, all right. I think I'm with you sort of on that. The one thing I would say is that I I think that the good thing about it was that it forced the teams, or it forced the league, I should say, to start realizing, to start taking some steps to make the game a little more serious. Because what had happened was, basically, these guys were getting selected. They'd have pitchers on the team who they had no intention of being able to pitch. And Tori was, by the way, very guilty of that with Rivera. Tori was the worst. I mean, yeah. even after that 0-2 game, Tori gave an interview. He's like, well, I promised this manager I wouldn't pitch this guy, and I didn't think I should pitch this guy for this manager. And it's like, okay, well, then what the hell are these guys doing here? Have them show up and wave their little hat, but then have replacements on the roster so they can pitch. And so I think that there was, and, you know, the, and I'm sure this still goes on, but maybe not as much players batting once and leaving in the third inning. And it just, I think it did sort of force a little bit of a focus on the league or on the game by the league. And that narrow part of it, I think was a big deal. Now, the biggest thing that they came up with the other thing too, and this is maybe this is a really little small thing, but they didn't name an MVP of the game. Yeah, that's right. Which I know sounds silly, but it's almost like, it almost sends a message like, okay, this game just didn't matter. Like, why could they not just name an MVP? Yeah, and just make it Tory Hunter for that catch. I mean, well, whoever, yes. So th they did sort of seem to like, it was almost like they were like 
embarrassed that they were still out there and were just trying to get it over with as quickly as possible. Yeah, and I, and I, and I agree. And, and I mean, look, the everybody plays has went too far. You're going to – some guys, you know, especially if you're a young guy and you made the team, like, no, you shouldn't go in with the expectation. Like, I'm absolutely – if you're a reliever, especially – and this ties back into every team gets a player. And, okay, when there was eight teams in the league or even ten – just by natural selection, you're going to probably end up with guys from seven or eight teams. So maybe you have to figure in one team or two teams. Now that we're at 15, and for a while there were 16 teams in the National League, if suddenly you're adding five guys to the roster who really have no business on the roster, they then don't also need to pitch. Like, oh, okay, you're the, you're the representative for the last place Pirates, your ERA is 5.87 and you're a middle reliever. I'm sorry, you're not going to pitch. You're not gonna, it should be enough for you that you were there. You're not going to factor into our plans. And the same thing with like, okay, you're going to start and we're going to get some of the backups in, but like you're going to play five or six innings. You're not coming out after the second inning. So I actually liked a lot of the changes they made either after that or in the ensuing years. I think they made a rule where like a catcher can come back into the game if he needs to and... I know pretty soon after that, they did away with like, just because it's in a National League park doesn't mean we need to have the, the pitcher hit because the pitchers never get like, just put the DH in there. I liked most of the rules and we're going to get to the big one in a second. I didn't even hate giving home field advantage. To, what I was more talking about was just the people who made it seem like it was a moral outrage that the all-star game ended in a tie. And I, I can't have any specific examples right now, but I am telling you there were articles about like, especially now with this, with the country, the year the country has had, how dare the all-star game ended a tie. Yeah. So no, no, I remember some of that too. So let's talk about the, you know, b- before you do that, why don't I, why don't I just sort of run through a few more sort of moments that happened in the, in the ensuing years, and then we'll kind of get to the big picture stuff. So the following year, and we'll talk about this in a minute is the first year of the, home field in the world series the American league comes back to win on a home run by Hank Blaylock, the third baseman for the Texas Rangers. I think the entire Rangers infield wasn't, was it were all stars that year? Cause it was Texera, Michael Young at second base, a rod at short. And then this Blaylock at third base five year list later well, in 2000. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Oh, three. You got to remember the big thing about that was that was in the middle of Ganya's like 73 games straight save and he got his butt kicked in that all-star game. That was That's the, right. He was the one who gave up that rally to the American League. Yeah, that was the big, you know, that's the big part of that comeback. 2008, last year at Yankee Stadium, the All-Star game is there, 15 innings, 23 pitchers, a walk-off sack fly by Michael Young wins the game in the bottom of the 15th. 2011, first game with the DH in the NL Park. 2012 and 2011, 2012, there's two consecutive shutouts in the All-Star game for the first time ever. 2017, they end the home field. And after the 2018 All-Star game, the teams are exactly tied. Each team is 43, 43, and 2, and has scored 361 runs. And then in... 2019, you have a victory by the American League 4-3, to three. so the teams are currently separated by one win and one run. Of course, no All-Star game last year. 
in 2020, and there's one coming up in 2021, uh, just about the time you'll all be listening to this. Yeah. So those are sort of the big moments. And then I don't know, maybe if you want to backtrack a little bit, yeah, the the home field in the All-Star or in the World Series. And that 08 game, by the way, was the last game, you know, was the last year of the old Yankee Stadium. Yeah. They gave the Yankees the All-Star game, sort of long, exciting game that you mentioned was won by the American League at the end there. And then this year, we'll, you know, we'll, A, it's still just happening and there's not a lot of historical context to it plus it's kind of dicey territory we don't really want to get into but you know the venue being moved due to outside pressure is something that should at least be mentioned it was supposed to be in atlanta gets moved to colorado for uh, political outcry over a law that was passed in georgia so that's the first time anything like that has happened in the mlb all-star game it's happened with i think it happened with the nba all-star game in carolina years ago yeah too i believe the super bowl with martin luther king day so yeah Worth noting, it's the first time something like that's happened to the MLB All-Star Game. And you just hope that that doesn't overshadow the game, especially because there hasn't been one in a couple of years. But yeah. So what uh, were your thoughts on this sort of home field in the All-Star Game thing that they did for so long? So a couple of thoughts I have on it. Yes, it's dumb. It's not any dumber than the way they used to do it. So I, I got very frustrated. It was one of those where... Even though I didn't agree with it, I found myself defending it because all of a sudden you have people go like, oh, so, and I won't even use the Yankees as an example. I'll be like, oh, so if the uh, Indians win 110 games, they could have to, they might not have home field advantage in the World Series against the Braves who won 87 games because the NL won the All-Star game. Totally fair argument. The problem with that is before 2002, the World Series just rotated every year. Yeah. Starting in 1903. And I know, I guess and I was a little too young for this, but I guess that was actually a big thing in 94 because not having a World Series threw that off where it was like, oh, well, in even years, it's supposed to be this league. And in odd years, it's supposed to be this league. And that kind of threw that off. So having the All Star game winner determine it was bad. It wasn't to me any worse than having it just rotate every year. So we finally now landed on what it should have been for a long time, which is just based on record. And that whole thing lasted for what, like eight years? I think it was like 03 through 10 or something like that. 16. Oh, did they do it for that long? Yeah. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. I misread my notes. 03. Yeah. So they did it for a decade and a half. And the other thing I would say that, and again, this kind of comes from being a Yankee fan, most years, especially in mid-July, you thought the Yankees had a chance to play in the World Series. Now through that whole era they played in the World Series twice in 03 and 09, but most years it was at least possible. And I have to admit, it was a little bit of a kick where all of a sudden I'm like my least favorite player in baseball. And I'm like, all right, come on, Ortiz, just hit a home run here. You know, like that was a little neat, you know, where you're like, ah, this guy I hate, I have to root for now. Now, again, if you were a fan of the, Reds during that time or the Mariners that probably didn't hold as much water. So yes, it was to me not the best way to do it, but to me it was a lateral move from the way they'd been doing it before. And ultimately it ended up with the way it should be, which is just home field. I mean, just based on record. So that, that was kind of my thought on it. Yeah, I tend to agree. I, I didn't care one way or the other. I don't know that it made me care anymore about the All-Star game because even if your team is lucky enough to make it to the World Series, 
how many World Series do you look at and say, gosh, home field really made a big difference in that oh, World Series? I'm sorry? Oh, one? Yeah. No, that, 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 that. There have been a couple, but I, the point is well taken. Most of the time, no, but there's been a few. And so I think they've arrived at a decent place with it. I, I think the players are probably playing a little more. I don't know how you feel about sort of two things that go together, the every team thing, which I like. And then there's just so many guys on the roster now. Well, you can't really have one without the other. No, I know. You're right. I mean, you could, especially because it doesn't mean anything anymore. The every team thing, to me, during the era where it quote-unquote counted, I didn't love it. And for the reason, again, that now we're talking... If you told me we're going to cut the rosters back down and we're going to lose that, I'd be fine with it. But I tend to agree with you. If it's 34 players, fine. Do they still have the rule where if you start on that Sunday, you can't be on the team? Well, and that's the other thing. And I, I, this has always been my issue with the Pro Bowl in the NFL and why I think, you know, we've had other episodes. Where it's like, well, this guy was an X-time all-star. And especially when you're talking about current day, so, okay, 34 guys are on the roster. Anyone who pitches Sunday still goes, but they get replaced. Anyone who's hurt is an all-star, but then they get replaced. You have up to 45 guys who are all-stars. So it kind of dilutes what that means when it's not just 34, it's always at least pushing 40. And that's what I would say about the Pro Bowl is like, okay, however many guys make the pro bowl, half of them don't go. So you have a hundred pro bowlers. I'm looking at 2014, just as I was looking through last night, 2014 kind of jumped out at me. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 12, there are 16 injury replacements. So that means with 34 all-stars, 84 guys were all-stars that year. That's more than two a team. Now, obviously that's not every team doesn't have two, some have more, but it, you're right. It does kind of cheapen it to have the rosters be that big and do the replacements. I'd almost rather have them have the rosters be that big and not do the replacements. And just, you just realize that there's certain pitchers that just are not going to pitch. Yeah. And again, it's one of those like, ah, eh, who, you know, let another, you know, and sometimes guys are replacements and it's like, oh, cool. That guy got to be an all-star this stage of his career. You mentioned a guy like Girardi, but does it dilute it? Yeah, it does. When the rosters are, when you factor in injuries and stuff, when the rosters are nearly twice the size of a normal team's roster, yeah, it dilutes it. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. But it's still, I, I will say, first of all, it's still the best All-Star game by far. The NBA has done some good things over the last couple of years. COVID, they still played the NBA All-Star game last year, but they kind of played it under weird kind of circumstances and but last year 2020 the NBA all-star game was good at least the fourth quarter was because it got competitive at the end so I mean the pro bowl is always going to be nonsense NHL all-star game kind of the same thing because there's just no defense being played well the, the NHL all-star game is the one where the scores are the most unconnected to you know the the pro bowl putting aside anything else the pro bowl they score in the 50s or the 60s. The An NFL game, usually a team's in the 30s or the 20s. The NBA All-Star game, 
even at its most absurd, they score 180, 190 points, right? Okay. The NHL game now, the way they do it with the periods, those periods end 10 to 9. When was the last time you saw a hockey game end 30 to 27? Last time I played Nintendo, I <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So it's like, it's just so, why would you want to be a goalie in that? (laughs) My guys aren't going to play defense. Yeah. I like, yeah, no, it's play without the goalie. That would be, I think the nature of baseball is just such that it can still be, it can look like a regular baseball game by and large. Yeah. So it's fun. It's got good history. I still think there's something neat about seeing all these guys lined up on the foul lines at the beginning of the game from every team and, you know, all the stars in one place. It it means something, even if just for those couple of minutes, even if the game ends up being kind of hit or miss. I absolutely agree. All right. Well, this was a good episode, a little trip back to the Midsummer Classic, which we hope you all enjoyed, and we hope you all will check out the All-Star Game at some point over the next, uh, probably within a couple days of when we plan to have this air. Andrew, thank you as always for joining me. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. And until next time, I'm Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact. Here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.